Welcome to C. diff, spores, and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here's your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us today. We would like to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare. Please visit their website at cloroxhealthcare.com forward slash cdfradio and find out how they are keeping all the environments safer. We appreciate their sponsorship. And today, joining us is our guest, Maureen Spencer, RN, Med Education. And Maureen has been board certified in infection control for over 30 years and is currently um, with us and to discuss the Coronavirus Disease 2019 or otherwise known as COVID-19, uh, a time to review the basics through prevention, symptoms, and treatments, and from a lot of the questions that you have asked. So without any further ado, I would like to welcome Maureen to the program. And there Thank you, you are, Nancy. Maureen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Oh, no. Maureen, we thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here with us. And if you wouldn't mind taking a moment just to um, share your background and information with our global listeners. Sure. So I've been uh, an infection preventionist for over 40 years. Most of my career was up in the Boston area. Um, I was the director at Massachusetts General Hospital. So I have experience with a large teaching institution and then the New England Baptist Hospital, which is an orthopedic specialty facility. And then I was corporate director at Universal Health Services that has 28 acute care hospitals in seven states. So that's a whole different way of looking at standardizing infection control programs in a system. And then I, for a brief period of time, actually worked with a molecular diagnostic firm, Accelerate Diagnostics, which has a very fast, rapid blood culture, uh, antimicrobial sensitivity test, which for is really critical for patients who have sepsis. So that kind of goes in line a lot with this outbreak since many of these patients who get pneumonia, it's not uncommon for them to get that bacteria once they get, say, a secondary pneumonia after getting a viral pneumonia for it to get into the bloodstream and it can confuse the picture. So it's, mm-hmm. now I am a semi-retired infection prevention consultant, but I had retired in December, and this hit COVID. So my whole life has been pretty much uh, full-time consulting for COVID. Exactly. <laughs> You're working more now than you did before. <laughs> I Absolutely. No, no doubt. You know, you, mm-hmm. you know what? So many people know me uh, from not just infection prevention, but, you know, you've got friends and you've got family and so many people that want questions answered. So they think, oh, let's just talk to Maureen. And so I get, you know, Facebook messages and I get, text messages and emails and it's been, and I'm very good at, you know, answering people back because everybody's just so scared and, you know, but that keeps you busy as well as the webinars and newsletters and other things I'm working on. Exactly. And we thank you so much, Maureen, you know, your expertise in this field and the amount of knowledge you can share with others is just, it's just priceless. And thank you so much for all that you do. Yep. Thank you. And Maureen, let's just start with the basics today and, I'm going to ask you, what is a coronavirus? Well, that, that's a great place to start. And because I think a lot of people are very confused about how is this different, say, from influenza or other kinds of infections. They might have gotten a coronavirus infection in the past uh, called a common cold. But the first thing is to just, which gets people very confused, the difference between bacteria and viruses. 
So viruses are much tinier, much smaller, and can therefore travel around and get into your nasopharynx easier than, say, bacteria. And all of these viruses have a protein coat around them, which is around their core of their genetic material, and it can either be RNA or DNA. So unlike bacteria that can survive without a host, you may be colonized. We have commensals. They're called bacteria all over our skin. In fact, they say that 10% of your body weight is made up of bacteria that are in your colon, that are down your nasopharynx, or just everywhere in your body. And they live with us, and they're healthy. They're, they're, they're actually what helps prevent things like, for instance, C. difficile. If you have a good gut microbiome, the good bacteria. So we can be colonized, they call it, or commensal means they just live with us uh, non-pathogenically. But viruses can only reproduce themselves by getting into cells. And so what happens is when they get into a cell, so they bypass your nose and get up into your nasopharynx, they take the cells and they use them as like factories to manufacture and make millions of copies of itself. It's almost similar to what cancer does. The cells go out of control and they start making more and more and more cells and bulk up into a tumor, for instance, or spread through lymph nodes. Well, viruses get in the body and they start duplicating themselves and then those viruses get released once that cell gets killed and starts traveling all over the body to find other areas to infect. So this particular um, group of viruses called coronaviruses and the reason that they're called corona is because when you look at them on an electron microscope, they have these spikes all over them. And I'm sure if you've been on the CDC website, you see the big picture of the corona and these spikes all over it. And that's why it's called a crown. Um, but they were first discovered back in 1930s as a cause of respiratory infections, first in chickens. And then they moved from that source into humans around 1960, presenting as, you know, just an upper respiratory common cold. So we call them an envelope virus because they have this oily lipid coating around it. And what that does, it protects them from immune cells. What's good for us as far as the environment, they don't really necessarily like the environment. Like I said, they want to be in a cell to replicate, but we can kill them pretty easily with soap, alcohol, and disinfectant. So that's the good thing is that they're not hardy, as we call it, in the environment like bacteria can be. And so what happens is they they get in there and they protect themselves from the immune system. And so we classify them as three different types of coronaviruses. Uh, I mean, of viruses, envelopes. DNA, RNA are retroviruses, like HIV is a retrovirus. Corona is an RNA. And there are actually seven different types. So four of them cause the common colds and your rest, upper respiratory infections. And often you'll feel yourself coming down with a scratchy throat and runny nose and maybe a low-grade fever and aches in your body. You go to your PCP and they take a flu test and you're negative. And a lot of times we'll say, ah, oh, you probably have a coronavirus. Or maybe even a rhinovirus. That's another, another cause of upper respiratory. But there are some that are, are really um, more difficult for us to deal with. Uh, the origin is from animals or in this situation, they're pretty sure it's from bats that got into the community, especially in Wuhan, China, and they spread to humans. And so we have three different types that cause more serious diseases. SARS-CoV-1, which caused the outbreak of that. And SARS means sudden acute respiratory syndrome in 2003, and they thought that had to do with bats. And then there was MERS-CoV, or Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, in 2012, that was seen though in 21 countries, and that also was thought to come from bats, and it got into camels uh, in the Middle East. And then we have SARS-CoV-2, 
which is a new virus that causes the disease or infection called COVID-19. That's what they officially named it, uh, WHO. And that source, as they thought, in the live um, animal market in Wuhan, where we saw the um, outbreak start. And so there are other theories about where this might have come from, you know, conspiracy theories and so forth, which at this point is a mute point. <laughs> it's like we just in the middle of a major once-in-a-lifetime outbreak, if you think about what we're going through right now. We'll be telling grandkids, we'll be talking about this, that we've survived the, the coronavirus outbreak. So that's, that's what they are. They're just these crown-like spikes on their surfaces and hijack cells and replicate and cause infections. Okay. Thank you so much, um, Maureen, for explaining all of that. And um, the first case was um, found in the U.S. in January of this year, correct? Yes. So the first case came from uh, somebody who had flown in from um, China and came over. No, it was a U.S. citizen who was over in Wuhan working and then came back to the U.S. in Washington State, that whole Seattle area. And they came down with it the middle of January. And so, again, when the public health department kind of was looking at everything, they thought, well, this is pretty contained in the city, and they've shut the whole city down, and they started to shut all their flights down, you know. And, but a lot of people fled Wuhan when this all started to move. So that's really probably what started the spread throughout the world is that the Airplanes that people, whether they were visiting Wuhan or they lived there, wanted to get out of the city, kind of like what happened in New York. Everybody started to to leave. So, but then we had another case that happened um, down down in the in California of somebody who was not exposed, had not come from China, and so that's what got everybody concerned. Is that here we have our first U.S. case of coronavirus, and that's what led President Trump and his team at the end of January to shut down the flights coming in from China. They allowed the Americans that were there to come back. But, you know, they shut down anybody that was not American. Well, again, think about it. These people might have been exposed. They could have been asymptomatic, which can go on for like almost 14 days before you start to see symptoms. And they started to spread it in other cities around the United States and maybe other countries. Okay, thanks, Maureen. And we have three minutes until we go to break, and um, that would be probably the great time to um, answer. The question that came in is, why is it named COVID-19? Yeah, so the um, the World Health Organization um, named the disease COVID-19, representing, um, and this is by this International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses. It's called ICTV. And they called this, the virus itself, another SARS-CoV-2 rather than one based on, you know, what they already saw with the causing acute respiratory symptoms. But then they named it the coronavirus, or uh, short for that COVID-19, representing that it started in 2019. So that was officially uh, WHO's, that's their official role to name diseases uh, through this international classification of diseases. Okay, and viruses are named based on their genetic structure? Yeah, basically they're, you know, what they do is they look at the genetic structure and that will help them facilitate the development of diagnostic tests and vaccines and medicines. They have to really look at, you know, is it an RNA, is it a DNA, is it a retrovirus, and that's how they're able to figure out their testing. This virus in particular is a little worrisome because it's gone through a lot of mutations. 
And so that's why, like the flu, every year you have to get a new flu vaccine because they mutate. The strains change, and then we figure out, well, what was happening last year? Well, it's going to happen the same thing with this. It's going to take them a while to really get a vaccine. I heard that there's one that right now is being tested in in the country. I forget where that was. Um, But, you know, they usually typically take a year to to a year and a half for them to get a vaccine effective enough uh, for the particular strains that are out. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much, Maureen. And at this time, we're going to pause where we are and go to a brief commercial break. When we return, we will be discussing the COVID coronavirus with Maureen Spencer. So please don't go away and we'll be back after these messages. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. To help support the C. diff foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate or call toll free 1-844-4-C-DIFF. That's 1-844-367-2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean, dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program and thank you all for joining us today with our guest, Maureen Spencer, who's here discussing the COVID-19 coronavirus disease 2019, a time to review the basics through prevention, symptoms and treatments and all the questions that you've asked. So at this time, I want to welcome back Maureen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Nancy. (laughs) You're welcome. And Maureen, uh, before the commercial, you were kind enough to discuss and introduce what the coronavirus is. And a really good question a lot of individuals have asked is, why can't we take an antibiotic to kill this? Exactly. Good question. Because it comes up every year when we're dealing with flu or common colds. And it's one of the most confusing concepts for the public to understand if they don't have a good background in microbiology. But antibiotics are manufactured to kill bacteria. So if you take Keflex, for instance, or amoxicillin, it's specifically for bacteria. It could be Staph aureus, or 
may, for instance, methyl-resistant staph aureus or E. coli for urinary tract infection. Those are antibiotics. But then we have, we do have some antivirals. I mean, people who have HIV take them. People who have herpes simplex, genital or oral might take an antiviral. So there are some antivirals available. There are no antivirals that have been developed for this. And so that's one of the problems is people will go to their physician and a lot of times demand an antibiotic or the physician sees that they have a low-grade fever and they've got some purulent secretions, say a sinusitis or things coming out of their nose or an ear infection, they put them on antibiotics. But now with antibiotic stewardship, we're finding that that's not healthy to do. We really have got to pull back on the use of antibiotics. The reason that you have this show and you have your organization, your foundation, is because the antibiotics wipe out the gut microbiome that I talked about earlier that you absolutely need to be healthy. And what happens, it gets overgrown with these resistant organisms. Um, and something like C. difficile can come in and start growing and take over that, quote, land, and then we have nothing to fight it with. It starts producing this terrible colitis. So that's one of the serious problems with inappropriate use of antibiotics. Not only that, many of them cause acute kidney damage. They cause skin rashes, and and it can be a severe reaction called Stephen Johnson syndrome. And so we're really trying to wake up uh, the public about not using antibiotics. We're not sure yet with COVID. They're looking at that. I'm starting to see a few reports because I've been curious about that. How many of the patients who had coronavirus pneumonia ended up on ventilators? You know, I mean, when you get your lung and it's not breathing, you've got pooled secretions down there. That's absolutely a beautiful incubator for bacteria. So they can get what's called a secondary bacterial infection on top of the viral infection that started first. And then they may subscribe them, uh, prescribe them some antibiotics. But now we're back to, okay, are we going to see more multiple drug-resistant organisms that are resistant to the antibiotics or C. difficile? We won't know that yet for a while. Um, but that's what I'm hearing is that these patients do require antibiotics because they're developing secondary infections um, because of the, of the ventilators. Exactly. Not surprising at all, Maureen. Thanks so much for answering that important question. And like you said, it gets asked every year, especially around the flu season. Um, You know, here's another great question is how long do does the COVID-19 or the virus last on surfaces? And I know there's a multiple different surfaces that we can talk about here. Right. So there are studies that have been done looking at the coronavirus in different surfaces. And there was a a report in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of weeks ago that, you know, kind of got everybody a little concerned. Typically, viruses, as I said earlier, once they come out into the environment, they just don't like the harshness and the dryness of, you know, sitting on a tablecloth or or in a chair and a doorknob. They want humans. They have to have your human cells to replicate. But they can sit there, and if you come along and that door... You just washed your hands in the bathroom, and you go and push the door open, and the person before you didn't wash their hands, and they had coronavirus all over it, and you touch it, and then you wipe your nose or you you rub your eye. That's what we call cross-contamination or cross-transmission, which is why it's so important that we keep sanitizing and washing our hands and being careful about the environment. As I mentioned earlier, because it's an envelope virus with this lipid, oily, uh, you know, coating around it, which helps them prevent them getting killed by the immune system. The good thing is we can kill it pretty easily with surfactants, uh, cleaning surfactants, as well as soap and disinfectants, everyday disinfectants. If you can't 
afford Clorox wipes or they're out because you can't get them, just get a container of just basic, uh, put your t- paper towel, the good, good paper towel brand in there and just take a one to 10 solution of bleach and pour it in or some Lysol. And you can make your own wipes because people are having a hard time accessing those kinds of things today. But what's happening is once they did these studies, they found that it can last up to five days on metal. So things like silverware are counters and doorknobs, wood, four days. Furniture, your decking, your railings, your tables, plastics, things like credit card scanners where you're putting your finger on or putting your, you know, having to sign things, ATMs, keyboards, computer screens, even milk containers, subway, bus seats, backpacks, elevator buttons, two to three days they can last there. Stainless steel, things like your refrigerators, pots and pans, sinks, two to three days. Cardboard even, shipping boxes, which is why there was some concern about all, everybody's now shopping online and Amazon and UPS are going crazy, but it can actually live on the outside of those boxes up to a day. Um, even your copper pennies, cookware, four hours, aluminum, soda cans, tinfoil, water bottles, they found two to eight hours, uh, glass up to five days, same as ceramic, five days, paper, length of time varies. Some strands can live only a few minutes on paper, but others can get up to five days. And then food or water, good thing is, does not appear to be, to be spreading at all or be a source for this. And it makes sense that it wouldn't, as a virus, wouldn't be get in the food and then you would ingest it or in water. The point is, is that it's lasting longer than the typical viruses uh, that we've known for even influenza. So that's what's led to a lot of the social distancing and staying at home. You don't want to get it, stay at home, period. <laughs> you don't get in front of anybody else, then no. If one of your family members goes out, they could bring it back. So they have to make sure they have their, their gloves and their you know, masks and their sanitizing and all of that. Uh, but, you know, we're getting the society back now. So we're going to have to really enhance yep. EBS in the hospitals and environment, that's called environmental services. But even your own disinfection, you know, in your own house, I mean, really start cleaning a little bit more than you have. And you can just, like I said, use things like bleach and Lysol to clean because this particular virus seems to last a little longer in the environment than others. Exactly. And earlier, Maureen, you mentioned the one to 10 solution because the wipes are so limited. Um, I just want to reiterate that. And that's one cup of bleach to nine cups of water that needs to be changed. The solution needs to be changed daily if you're just making a solution for that. So because that's the same thing we do with the C. diff. And um, if it's like for C. diff because it's a spore, it has to stay, the solution has to stay on hard surfaces, non-porous surfaces for 10 whole minutes to kill C. diff. Now, if you're using it for the virus, how many minutes do you suggest, Maureen, that the solution stays on the hard surface? Is yeah, it like two, much three minutes? Within a minute. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, just even up, yeah. The problem you have to be careful with bleach, as you know, it can stain your clothes, it can stain counters. You know, so a lot of times in the home environment where you might not really be thinking about your you know, the quality of your, like, we have to think about that in healthcare, you know, what disinfectants can be on what kinds of surfaces. So mm-hmm. sometimes you're better off with that pine salt or, you know, Lysol, something like that, that you're not going to have the problem that you would have with bleach. But bleach exactly. will work. Yeah. Yep. That's wonderful. And I'm so surprised when you said glass, I, I mean, I can't believe glass items, five days. That's a lot of time to last yeah. on glass. Yeah, thank now, you I do for have sharing. To say that that study, when they do these tests, you know, they're looking for the RNA 
um, on the on the particular surfaces when they when they culture them, um, or they not really culture, but when they test them, the presence of what are called the nucleic acids from the virus. Mm-hmm. So we're just you know saying that this is a piece of the virus. What we're not sure is if those pieces could then be transmittable to cause the infection. Okay. We're just giving a sense when you when they do all these studies to show people this is where we have found it and how long we found it afterwards. It's right. when somebody has the infection and they're putting it out, they're coughing, sneezing, talking out loud, and the stuff is settling all around you. That's the more infectious part. Those are the more infectious particles. But okay. again, this is just to give us an idea that this one can can pieces of it can hang around for a longer period of time than, than we had anticipated. So you just have to enhance, as we call it, and just start cleaning more and disinfecting more than you might have in the past. Exactly. And here's a really great question. Is it airborne? Everyone wants to know. Is it airborne? (laughs) Now, we know that a sneeze, we know, and that the cough. So if either one, how long is it going to hang in the air? So that's another confusing part of this, even for the healthcare workers, because we have Airborne diseases that require a negative pressure isolation room. We have droplet infections that require a private room. And then we have contact diseases where you touch the skin and you can pick up things like MRSA or the C. difficile. So we put them on to call contact precautions. Anybody going into that room to touch the patient has to wear a gown and gloves. And then we have, um, uh, like for TB precautions, they would go into, say, airborne precautions. For somebody who's got measles or mumps or chickenpox, because these viruses are so small and suspend in the air for a long time, they have to go into airborne. So typically we have um, these airborne and droplets get a little confusing at times because a droplet means these, and you probably have seen somebody's talking and all of a sudden some of this spit comes flying out of their mouth. And it could even land on you or near you or in their food as you're talking to somebody at dinner. And that's what we're talking about with, co- with coronavirus. However, they did find that, again, this virus, just like it gets on the surfaces, can suspend these particles, suspend in the air for up to three hours. And you want to, they go out of your mouth about three to six feet. That's where the six feet social distancing comes in. They've done studies on this. So look, see how far out when you cough or sneeze or talk very loudly, these viruses come out and where do they land? Well, gravity pulls them down to the ground. Whereas with airborne diseases like measles or chickenpox or TB, they don't get pulled to the ground. They suspend and they keep moving around the air. Because of the how deadly this has been, I mean, gosh, it's about 80% of people don't require hospitalization, either have asymptomatic coronavirus or a mild case. That's the good news. About 20% have to get admitted. And of the 20%, there's a group of them that, depending on where you live and the uh, type of uh, population you're looking at, end up on the ventilators. And But the problem is if you're on a ventilator, it's a very high number of people that don't come off the ventilators and they die. So I like to focus on the positive that, you know, 80% of people either have, if they get this, have an asymptomatic or a mild case of it. And then there's that small number that has to go to the hospital and then, again, a smaller number that end up passing away with it. So we want to do as much as we can in the hospital to protect the healthcare workers. So that's why they're using negative pressure isolation rooms. They're, they're converting. Sometimes the whole nursing unit's being converted by facilities um, or they're bringing in these HEPA filter filtrations, negative pressure units 
into an ICU or into a room uh, where they're maybe say where they're doing some bronchoscopies or suctioning and so forth, what we call um, aerosolizing generating procedures, AGP. You might see that in the literature uh, where you have to wear N95. So for now, it's not necessarily airborne. If it was, would have met many more people infected. Can you imagine on a subway system, in a train or an airplane, if it was airborne, truly airborne, like measles or mumps. So because it's a droplet disease, we're kind of lucky that it will settle down on particles. But then you can come along and swipe your hand on that area that they just coughed on or sneezed on and bring it up to your nose, which is why we're wearing the masks. So you will exactly. not touch your face, your nose, and your mouth. You still get your eyes. So, I mean, when I go to the store, I wear sunglasses plus the mask. I'm not exactly. wearing gloves because I want to sanitize my hands. That gives you a false sense of security by having gloves on. Um, that's not really recommended that you walk around public with gloves on, but I walk around with a bottle of sanitizer in my pocketbook and in my car, and I have okay. disinfectant wipes. <laughs> so I'm you are well prepared. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we have to be, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what, Maureen, we're just going to take a short break at this time uh, and hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back after these messages. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. To help support the CDF Foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate, or call toll free 1 844 4 CDF. That's 1 844 367 2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program and thanks for joining us today. Here is our guest today is Maureen Spencer and Maureen has been with us discussing the coronavirus uh, COVID-19, a time to review the basics through prevention, symptoms and treatments, all from questions that you have asked and we're so glad and so um, appreciative to have Maureen here with us today. Thank you for joining us today, Maureen. Welcome back. 
Thanks for having me, Nance. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) Maureen, here's a really good question people um, have been asking. Does the fever develop before the rest of the symptoms or does the fever happen um, and then a patient can't breathe on their own? How does that, how has that been seen? Yeah, it really depends. I mean, what's interesting about our body, the reason that we heat up is that we want to be able to help the immune system do its job. And so when you have, they say, if you can ride the temperature and just, I mean, it's very uncomfortable when you're hot like that, especially if you get into the higher temps and everything. But think about it. The body's like trying to boil water. It's just with 75% water, a liquid medium. So they have mechanisms inside to heat us up. But it's fascinating that recent research is showing over the years that our temperatures have changed. We've gone lower. So we used to be, I always say, a normal temp is 98.6. Well, it's kind of running now 97.5 to 97.9. So that's kind of the time. If you find your temperatures low, you don't want to get yourself all concerned. It's kind of been running a little lower. Typically, when we start to really get a fever, we we talk about 100.4. And this has been critical for the hospitals as they are taking temperatures on every healthcare worker coming in. You can't get into the hospital. Uh, you can't get into a walk-in clinic. They're going to take your temp. They're going to do a pulse oximeter. They're going to put something, you know, the thing on your finger, and they're going to look to see what your oxygen saturation is. So those are two ways that they're kind of looking at somebody who might have a, a coronavirus infection. But basically, elderly people seniors don't necessarily get fevers. So they have different signs. If you're in this, That's probably why it ran so rampant through these skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes, because the elderly population do not have a robust immune system. As you get older, your immune system goes down, and they're more susceptible to things like infections. They often get pneumonia or urinary tract infections. So that's been a problem for them identifying um, when they were first in that asymptomatic stage, and then they just started spreading it. But it is a sign that your immune system is doing its job when you have a fever. But you want to think of it as a good thing and try to stay away from the antipyretics, you know, and like go take the Tylenol or the, um, you know, ibuprofen and just try to ride the wave. The best thing is get into a tub with cool water, tepid water, they call it, kind of cool, and cool yourself down, even face cloths around your neck and on, on the palms of your hands and in your groins can, you know, can cool the temperature down. So with viral infections, we typically have what we call a low-grade fever, 99 to 101. But we tend to see the higher temps with bacterial infections. With this virus, the way that it gets into the lungs and it produces very common patterns that what's called a ground glass opacities when they look in the x-ray, it looks like it's all ground glass the way it spreads through the lungs. And so the lungs are not breathing, getting the oxygen exchange in, and the body's starting to fight it, saying, what is this in here? You don't belong here, so we're going to fight you. So those temps start to go up to 103 to 104. Um, so so that it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a fever. Um, like I said, 80% of people have either an asymptomatic case, and maybe they didn't notice that they felt a little achy all over, or they were feeling a little confused, or they didn't have taste or smell. That's interesting. This virus, by the way, can go up to the brain. It can go into the nervous system. It can go to the lining of the heart, the liver, the gut. It's, it, it attaches to this, this particular protein called ACE2 protein that lines all these areas. It even lines the nasopharynx. So that's what this virus does. It's, it kind of reminds me of HIV that attacks a particular part of your immune system called the CD4 T cells. This one goes after this ACE2 
to protein uh, that lines the body. So they're finding people, sometimes their symptom is they can't smell and they have no taste anymore. And that's like one of the neurologic manifestations of this. So you can't rely on it just being the fever nowadays. It's just a whole, they've even changed it to headache, dry cough, fever, shortness of breath, GI symptoms. Some people start with abdominal pain and diarrhea is their manifestation of it because how that virus goes to the, the AC, uh, the ACE2 proteins. Loss of smell or taste, chills, and muscle-likes or sore throat. That's the new um, criteria they're adding to the CDC website about some of the symptoms. Exactly, and we did read that. And also, Maureen, I just want to say at this time that that's another reason um, the FDA is concerned about the fecal microbiota transplants, uh, the st- stool to donors, is because yep. of the um, the COVID nineteen being found in fecal matter. Yep, exactly. Yep. That's so, why your bathrooms have to be clean with bleach. Think about that. You know, yeah, make sure that exactly. you're wiping or bleach or Lysol your bathrooms as well. Um, Everything. Exactly. And here's another one. Um, Maureen is, uh, there are individuals wanted to know, is everyone that is diagnosed with the COVID-19, are they having to be placed on a ventilator? And what is a ventilator? So I always explain a ventilator as like a big ambu bag that does the ambuing for you. It's a machine that amboos you. If you've ever seen an ambu bag with an ambulance, you know, trying to keep the, the, the oxygen going through the lungs. And so, no, not everybody has to go on one. Um, what happens with people with this, when they put that pulse oximeter on, they start to notice that their oxygen saturations, that's what that measures, start to go down. And they could be talking to you normal, like they're not the typical pneumonia struggling for breath. If you've ever had pneumonia, it's really difficult to talk. In fact, you can't, if you can't hold your breath for 10 seconds, and you've got this dry cough and you're just struggling to get breath, and that's the time to get yourself to a hospital um, and into an emergency room because that means your lungs are starting to be filled up with the way this virus uh, causes this respiratory syndrome in the, in the lungs. So what they're doing now, they're starting to use what's almost like a CPAP, this co- continuous pressure. Uh, people who have sleep apnea use their CPAPs at night because at night is often where as we start to go to sleep, the muscles in the back of the neck start to settle down and they relax and they shut off the airways. And so this positive pressure keeps the airways open. And, you know, and I highly recommend anybody who's a heavy snorer, please go get tested for, CPA, for uh, sleep apnea. So many people have it. And we don't know. What, I mean, one theory I heard is could it be the cell phones that are all the electromagnetic fields affecting the, the size of your neck? I mean, we don't know why we're seeing so many people. It's not just obese people that get this. Very young people are getting it. So that's one thing they've, they've said. If you have a CPAP and you start to think you've got this corona, a mild case, use it all day. Put it on and use it all day long. They're looking at hyperbaric chambers for oxygen rather than the ventilators. Um, but because of this ground glass opacity presentation, and it's present in about 80% or more patients with this, and it tends to be bilateral in about 76% of patients, that's where they have to watch carefully your oxygen. And if your oxygen plummets way down, and they know you're not getting oxygen in, then they're going to go and put them on the ventilator. And the problem with them being on the ventilator is that many of them um, can't get off. There's a recent report that came out of uh, Italy where the physicians reported that nearly 90% of their 1,300 critically ill patients 
were intubated and put on the ventilator, but only 11% of them received this non-invasive ventilation, like I just talked about. But um, what happened is many of them didn't get off the ventilator. So they're trying to avoid putting people on the ventilator if at all possible, using things like a CPAP um, type of a device. I saw a helmet, which is uh, the University of Chicago, and the patient looked like they had a big space hat on, a clear plexiglass space uh, hat around them, and they're infusing the oxygen that way rather than just nasal prongs to give them. So there's all kinds of things they're looking at um, to try to avoid the use of the ventilator. Okay. Thanks so much, Maureen. And Maureen, are there specific researchers tracking every single country and city that the media is referring to as an epic center? Yeah, so the CDC and the local health departments are collaborating on the track cases. You know, they already had in place influenza tracking. So what CDC has done is just added on to the influenza surveillance system um, the, for the, you know, the, the health departments and the infection preventionists, actually. It may not be them or somebody in the hospitals to track and report through these systems down to the CDC so that they can keep on tab of their cases. And then you've got the WHO that collaborates with CDC so that they really can keep their pulse on how many infections are happening. Okay, wonderful. And before we go to break, um, Maureen, maybe you can just briefly discuss on what does the NIH do and the CDC and the World Health Organization? We know they're working together hand in hand, but can you explain what they are and who they are? Sure. So NIH, the National Institute for Health, they basically do the research. So that's where all the research grants and, you know, and get your researches at these big teaching hospitals. That's all the research grants come from NIH. And they're part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Re- uh, Health Services. CDC is, is also under the Department of Health and Human Services. So they're the agency that works to protect the nation from health and other safety and security issues. I mean, they look at the opioid crisis, they look at smoking, they look at the whole thing going on with the vaping. So they're involved with not just infections, it's diseases. And then we have the World Health Organization that works worldwide to promote health. And so this is part of a UN agency that's charged with spearheading international public health efforts. And so they monitor, you know, coordinate activities about health-related issues. They even look at, like, genetically modified foods, climate change, tobacco and drug use and road safety. And so that's the difference with them. You know, you've got them looking at kind of all these world issues, and then we've got in countries, and many of the countries have their own form of a, a CDC and a local Department of Health. Okay. Well, wonderful. Thanks so much, Maureen. And at this time, we're going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will be discussing the COVID-19, a time to review the basics of prevention symptoms and treatments with our special guest, Maureen Spencer. Please stay tuned. We'll be back after these messages. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products, EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes, trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. 
Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, and we thank you for joining us today. We have with us our special guest, Maureen Spencer, who has been here discussing the COVID-19, a time to review the basics of prevention, (laughs) symptoms, and treatments, and a lot of questions that we have received from you. And Maureen, we thank you so much for being with us today. Um, You've covered an enormous amount of information. And um, really, before we close the show, a really great topic would be when should a mask be worn besides being in a state that they have already claimed it mandatory? Right. So as you, you probably saw when we were watching all the news reports from, from China and then with Italy and Spain and all the other countries, you would see all these people had masks on. And even the healthcare workers had the full Tyvek suits, what we call bunny suits and helmets. And, and we're thinking, geez, we're not doing this over here. You know, they kept saying, no, let's conserve the masks for the healthcare workers. And the problem was we just ran out of masks for the healthcare workers. We couldn't, they couldn't get any N95s and surgical masks. So they were trying to say to the public, you know, stay at home, do a quarantine and, you know, wash your hands and don't go out <laughs> or do social distancing. So the other countries, though, have been using masks all along. So what they started to do, realize that in order to try to prevent you from picking it up or transmitting it out, to start to recommend the masks be worn. There's different kinds of masks. There's just a basic cloth mask that everybody's making now, homemade masks, or a bandana. Something as simple as a bandana around your nose is fine. And they did that in the influenza outbreak. We didn't have back in 1918 with that big Spanish flu outbreak. We didn't have masks back then. So they they just put clots around their nose and mouth in order to prevent you from inhaling it or transferring it with your contaminated hands. It still doesn't protect the eyes, as I said. So you might want to wear glasses or goggles if if you've got people around that might be infected. So then they started to say, well, we'll start to wear um, surgical masks in the hospital for a more non-critical exposure. Um, so CDC on their website has a whole section on when masks, the different kinds of masks are worn during different kinds of encounters and different kinds of procedures. When you're working with people who are absolutely infected and spewing out a huge amount of the virus and you're suctioning them, they're on a ventilator. See, when you're on a ventilator, you can't cough for yourself. So that's why they kind of paralyze the patient. They give them medications to knock them out so that they will not buck the machine. That's what we call it. They're bucking the machine. And their natural cough reflex starts to kick in. And so they're kind of put into kind of a coma state. And the nurses go in and do all that care. They have a catheter that goes down 
the endotracheal tube into the lungs and they suck out all of that mucus that the patient can't raise on their own. So those kinds of procedures are doing a bronchoscopy where they're going to flush, get down there with a bigger tube and flush all those secretions out. Um, Oh, they're taking specimens where they're having people expectorate. That's called that aerosol generating procedures or taking care of patients who are infected. You want an N95. Now, what an N95 means, and you probably have seen these at, at like Lowe's or Home Depot, the construction people work. It is a very high efficiency filter system to prevent dust particles and asbestos and bacteria and viruses from getting into your face. So it's just got that added protection. So what happened is people started to buy these up. They wiped out the supplies. They hoarded them. You're probably now seeing that they're going to, you know, arrest people that have, have been found to hoarding uh, these kinds of, because the healthcare workers didn't have them. So now what we're doing is reprocessing the masks. We have uh, four companies and maybe even a fifth now that have been approved by the FDA to reprocess used N95s in the hospitals. So they collect them after the day's use. They then send them to this company, and they either use hydrogen peroxide, a form of vaporized hydrogen peroxide, or ethylene oxide to um, disinfect these masks, and then they reprocess them, meaning they'll send them back out, and the healthcare workers can, can use them in order to t- try to help with this uh, issue that we've had. Now, a lot of people ask about children. Um, if children are within going to the store with you, if they're over two years of age, CDC doesn't recommend for children under two, but if they're older than two and they're going in the supermarket with you, which I suggest you don't take them, if at all possible, and not expose them unnecessarily, children can get this. I mean, Children's Hospital in Boston have got children up there with coronavirus infections. So it isn't that, you know, they're not one of the high-risk groups because they have such a good immune system, that robust, we call it, but you should be wearing a mask when you go outside. I could care less if your towns are opening up and they're going to now have theaters and restaurants and so forth. Personally, me, I will wear a mask until I know this thing is really down. Um, yesterday, we went to a store. I'm down in Florida right now. And we were shocked at how many people. I counted 10 people in the store with me, and only three of us had masks on. And so this is what's happening when they're like, oh, we're going to open up the beaches again. Or we're going to, you know, this thing, people just stop doing what they should be doing and put themselves at risk. They put us at risk because if they get an asymptomatic case, they can then pass it along. So that's the point. If you're asymptomatic, you have a mild case with the mask on, you prevent transmission out of you. And if you have a mask on and you're not infected, you're preventing entry of it into you. So that's the reason you want to wear a mask. And just get a homemade one, a bandana, whatever you can get your hands on them. It's just, you know, there's a lot of them now over the Internet. You can purchase masks now, but just make them on your own. It's just easier. There's all kinds of YouTube videos on how to make these masks. And even an N95, they're showing people how to make an N95 mask on uh, YouTube videos. Okay, Maureen. And when a child has symptoms, or if anyone has symptoms, um, what do you suggest uh, they wear a mask or actually just call the physician, correct? Oh, yeah. So anybody who shows any of those kinds of symptoms, especially you start to get the, the, I mean, GI is kind of tough because people think, oh, maybe a norovirus or something else and may not be understand that they've got an actual coronavirus. But if you did spike your temperature, shaking chills, get a massive headache, and you know maybe you were out and exposed to somebody, 
you know, can be very insidious, we call it, as it starts its replication in your body, how you're going to respond to it. You know, we're all individuals. We all respond different ways. You call because they're not wanting people to just show up. You call, and they will, they will triage you, we call it. And if you tell them their symptoms, they'll say, yes, get in here. It sounds like you're having shortness of breath and you can't breathe. Or go to the walk-in clinic. We'll tri- or we'll just have you stay- take care of yourself at home like you do with the flu. The problem there is the family members, CDC has all over their website a whole section of how to care for people in your home who have COVID. You're going to isolate them. You're going to put them in another bedroom, and I would wear a mask, and I would have sanitizer and just be very careful being around them while you're caring for them. So that's, there's a whole process of taking care of people that are infected um, in your home. If you're in, under quarantine because you got exposed and you have that 14 days that you have to stay at home, you know, those situations are not having everybody wear masks in the house. But when you go out again, you don't know if you're developing, using you as a little manufacturing factory to build millions of these viruses, viral particles up over days. So, yes, you want to wear a mask when you go out. So that's all detailed on the CDC website. Exactly. Maureen, thanks so much. And we know disposable surgical masks, the blue ones, um, are usually yeah. worn by sick people or people having symptoms to protect others from the cough and the sneeze and other body fluid droplets. Um, and also, they can wear a cloth mask being, you know, uh, created and right. um, sewn together by a lot of dedicated individuals right now. Um, and when right. they go out to public, that really should be not only to maintain social distancing, but the cloth mask will help protect them and others from asymptomatic carriers, correct? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're so uncomfortable to wear. I mean, I had yeah. mine on yesterday when I think I've been out over the last month three times. <laughs> you know, I with know. the mask on, oh my gosh, you're sweating, you can't breathe. Yes, they're uncomfortable. But, you know, just do it for that short period of time. If you don't want to get it, but if you want to take the risk, what are we going to do? I mean, exactly. you know, if you just think that you don't care, um, you may think that's okay for you, but, you know, you then serve uh, somebody who could bring it to your grandmother or your child exactly. and cause an infection. So it's just not worth it. This will nope. pass. We will get through this as we always do with our outbreaks. But, you know, we just have to stay vigilant not to have transmission. Absolutely. And at that point right now, Maureen, we are going to close the show already. We need another whole show just with you. And we can keep (laughs) discussing this. We know that. But right now, we just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for all that you do for others. and. Oh, you're yeah. so welcome. We can't wait to have you back really soon, too. And, um, you know, okay. we thank you for joining us today on Cedar Spores and More. You know that we're more than grateful for having you here. And at this time, the members of the CDIF Foundation would like to thank our sponsor, Clark's Healthcare. And please visit their website to learn more about uh, how they are keeping our environment safer. We wish to acknowledge the organizations around the globe dedicated to improving health through research and developing new products that not only address C. difficile infections, but all healthcare-acquired infections. Uh, to learn more about clinical trials that are focused on C. diff infections and recurrent C. diff, please visit the website cdifffoundation.org. Help them to help you to help others. To learn more about upcoming events that you will not want to miss out on, please visit the CDF Foundation's website. We send out our get well wishes to all the patients being treated for and recovering from CDF infections and the many wellness training and illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corrala, with our reminder, none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health, continued healing, and a good day. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. 